0: And we're live with Angular Air. My name is Kent C. Dodds. I'm your host, and with me are some pretty awesome people. Let me go ahead and introduce them, and everybody go ahead and say hi when I read your name, so that everybody knows who everybody is. So, uh, first we have Aaron Frost. What's up? Also known as JS Dev. Um, And then we have Ben Nadell. Howdy. Also known as Ben Nadell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you have a nickname. Master
1: nice disguise is there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice, and then, uh, and they're going to be talking with us today about architecting huge Angular applications, so we're excited about that, because lots of us have them, um, so this should be a very helpful show. We also have our panelists with us today, uh, Olivier Combe. Hi. And big thanks to Olivier. He put together this episode for the most part, so, yeah, good on you, thank you. Um, And Amy Knight.
2: Hello.
0: And Kara Erickson. Say hi, Kara.
2: Oh, you just froze. Hello.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Patrick JS. Hey. All right. Um, And uh, again, I'm your host, Kent C. Dot. So let's go ahead and get into quick announcements. Uh, Next week's show is uh, same time, same place, May 26th. Uh, Next week. Um, on web components, and it's going to be a spectacular show you don't want to miss. And then also uh, follow us on Twitter and Google Plus to stay up to date with the latest, as well as our website, which will hopefully by next week have a little bit of an overhaul, um, because we're going to start having transcriptions. Thank you to the people who are helping us with that. So that's going to be fun. And, uh, oh yeah, and I'm really sorry if you missed out on the Teespring campaign um, for your awesome Angular Air t shirt If you were one of the, I think, eight or nine people who ordered a t-shirt, let me know, because I'm curious of, like, the few people who actually got a shirt, but I was one. They're gonna be awesome. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. I'm so so stoked. Okay. So let's go ahead and get into um, the stuff that people are actually watching for. so we have Aaron and Ben here with us because they have some experience with um, architecture and huge applications using Angular. Um, so what, um, yeah, what, are, what are some of your, your thoughts or what are some of the considerations like when, when you're going to build a huge Angular application versus just your Hello World to-do app?
3: Hmm. I'm going to let Ben kick us off. Sure. So uh, I guess let me caveat
1: that with saying, so I've been doing Angular since 1.0.4, and the app that I work on is actually that same app, which which is an interesting journey because this was really before I think it had become popular, and it was way before, I believe, uh, John, Papa, and Todd a uh, style guide. So... Uh, what I would do today is certainly probably way different than what I have done for the last three years, and certainly for the last three years, I have accumulated a mountain of technical debt in my Angular applications, uh, so uh, I guess I would say that if you're going to start building an app today, absolutely, without a doubt, read the style guides. They're incredibly helpful, and um, I think uh, one thing that even that we did way back in the day was before we started building our app, we spent a good three to four weeks of company time learning Angular, doing a lot of like white page explorations, you know, how does resources work, how does HTTP work, how do, you know, all the various directives, there were fewer directives back then. Um, but putting in the time to kind of wrap your head around the Angular way of doing things I think is really important. and then. Pulling on a lot of the, the expertise that some of the uh, the kind of big architect oriented people are putting out there.
3: Yeah, so um, I would add to that that um, large Angular apps are even larger w- depending on your team size. So, yeah. like I read I read John Papa's Style Guide and I preach John Papa's Style Guide. And I'm like, you know what, there's things in there that I don't like, and there's things in there that you probably won't like. So just take his, clone it, and then like make your own. But the size of like, for us, the things I don't like the most are the ones when you're on a team with, like, 20 developers. That's, that's really when you have to think about how does Angular scale, not just, like, at runtime, but at development time. How do you get it to scale across, like, 20 developers and how do you get, like, the fewest amount of merge conflicts and... And let everyone work without constantly clobbering each other. So there's a lot to think about when you're building apps for app, big apps, but also apps on big teams. So there's a lot to think about. Yeah, I remember when I was at demo there with you, Aaron. That was a problem.
0: Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so actually, I want I wanted to ask. Um, maybe it would help us to get some context. Um, so maybe each of you could describe your applications. How big are they? Uh, How many developers you have working on them? Those kind of things.
3: So I work on a team with 17 or 18 front-end developers. And um, that sounds like a lot. It feels like a lot. I don't know if that's a lot. I don't know what size most people are working on. But it's one app. It's one huge single-page app. Most of our code is Angular. We have still some legacy backbone in there as well, though. And then we have some pages where... We wrote this Backbone component called Angular View that allows us to put Angular inside of Backbone. <laughs> so it's it's really kind of weird that you've got an Angular app running a Backbone view that's got Angular inside of that view, and so like it gets super super wonky uh, the way it all works. But we have over you know I think we're over 160,000 lines on one single page app, and that's just our code. That doesn't include like vendor libs. <laughs> so it's very very big app and um, there a lot of performance that goes into like checking, that goes into an app that size and a team that size.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd say our team. I mean, we started uh, with a team of three, and I think we're up to. Not everybody works in the Angular app, but I think we're probably up towards forty engineers. Probably twenty-five to thirty of them are either front-end or kind of full-stack developers. Um, And I I guess the other thing that I would add is that while we have a very large Angular app, it's not necessarily one single-page application. We've tried to find or found kind of the natural separation in the app where uh, this thing can open up in a new tab or a new window, and it's also an Angular app, and it does share some common modules. Um, But definitely being able to split things Uh, into their own sort of a sandbox and and playground uh, can help a lot as well.
3: Yeah. With a huge app, like, I love that. I wish I was in a world that was like that. Because (laughs) um, just a refresh once in a while, (laughs) it would make memory hogging so much easier to deal with. But um, when you have zero refreshes, it's pretty sucky sometimes. Yeah. Like life gets super strict, and you know that that one guy that thought he was gonna do something cool with the scroll handler who forgot <laughs> to kill, he forgot to turn it off um, when the on the destroy cycle. Yeah, he just leaked the whole DOM. So like it's very hard to to keep performance and memory leaks out of a, a humongous app and a a page refresh. Kind of solves all that, right? Like Ben, don't, it's yep. not one of the, that's got to be one of the things you love the most about occasional refreshing.
1: Oh, it's great, and I'll tell you. So, so one thing that we built in from a very, uh, very early on because we had this problem. So, uh, at, at a at a conference that I like to go to, I was talking to this guy from Google, and he was telling me that there they have very strict policies there about um, how often they can break the API that they're supporting their applications. And he said, at any one time, I think that's what he said. At any one time, the entire application or the entire backend has to support the current version of the API, and then I think the previous two versions of the API. Because he said at any time, if they're rolling out code, you know, let's say they have, you know, h- hundreds or thousands or even tens of thousands of servers, even an instantaneous deploy, you know, that's rolling across servers. There's going to be clients hitting it with old versions of the API mm-hmm. uh, expected. Um, so, you know, we don't come anywhere near that kind of uh, adherence to any kind of uh, friendly programming. Uh, so, so, one of the things that we built in a long time ago was the ability to, through WebSockets, uh, push a breaking change notification. So, if we know, you know most of the time we try not to have terrible breaking changes. But if we really have something where we're drastically changing something on the back end, or we really need someone to pull down new code if it's broken, uh, we can push this giant fluorescent pink banner to the top of the browser, and it'll say that we just pushed breaking changes. We strongly suggest that you refresh your browser.
3: Is it like Fuchsia, bro? Or? Yes,
1: it is. It's, a, it's probably like FF0033 or something. It's like the T-Mobile. Oh, thing. man.
0: Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, um, yeah that's, a <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice solution to the um, the garbage... Um, or the memory leak pro- problem.
1: <laughs> yeah, So, so al- but along those lines, right, so there's other kinds of situations where we had to take some sort of special uh, steps. So uh, one thing that could happen in a single-page app is your app is loaded, but your cookies get erased for whatever cookies expire, for example, right, or whatever tokenization you're using for authentication might be be broken. So you have an app that's loaded and the client thinks they can use it and they start clicking through, they're making API requests, and they're coming up with 401 unauthorized. And if you don't do anything on the front end they're just gonna continue to be frustrated and say the app's broken and just, you know, churning all kinds of Ajax requests. So um, in Angular, one of the things that we do is we, uh, during the configuration phase of the bootstrapping, we will create a provider that wraps around the HTTP service. And if any request comes back with a 401 unauthorized, we'll actually explicitly uh, drop down into the kind of vanilla layer of JavaScript and refresh the page so they get bounced out into a login or whatever they're supposed
0: to see at that point. That's mm-hmm. interesting, because I, I think you, uh, what I do in my app for that is uh, interceptors, so I, um, yeah, HTTP yeah. interceptors are great for that, and you can just um, like clear out the local storage or the cookie or whatever and send them to the login um, so yeah that's that was a ni- a nice uh, API that they they brought into it but I, I think that writing abstractions around uh, things that you use a lot in your app is a good idea too oh yeah absolutely, absolutely. Um, so um, Patrick's got a, a good question here do you want to shoot that one Patrick?
4: Yeah, how do you manage technical debt, with especially a <laughs> uh, large team? Get stronger. Do you, yeah, do you <laughs> update uh, Angular versions.
3: Oh chickens! Updating. Um, updating Angular, it's it's kind of a big deal. We have to, like, we have a like formal testing cycle, and they make us schedule it a few weeks out. So, like, when we branch for a release that's gonna come up in two weeks, the day we make the branch, we'll also check in the new Angular. But before we can check it into, like, the fresh branch that's on a two-week iteration, like, day one of the two-week iteration, we have to have already put it into its own branch and, like, tried to see if anything immediately breaks or is anything obviously dead, run the automation and see if anything is majorly wrong and fix all those. But then we check it in, like, day one of the two-week iteration, and then you have two weeks for the developer to develop against it and find the issues along the way, and then we have a two-week testing cycle after that, so that's how we manage the upgrading Angular problem. However, we don't upgrade Angular all the time. We do it maybe three times a year. We don't always stay on the latest, so we do get a couple versions behind sometimes, which I I hope that's normal. Is anyone else, like, more diligent than that? Because... That sounds crazy. Everyone's <laughs> unmuted, so it sounds uh, like everyone's going to say something.
5: I'm updating my app, um, like, uh, once a month, I think. But I'm the only front-end developer. <laughs> wow, that's impressive. Yeah, that is impressive.
3: So, a, a, a large... Carrie, were you saying something?
2: Oh, I was I was just going to say we're, we're on the same cycle. It would be really tough with... Um, the amount of engineers we have and how big our app is to do it. And imagine doing it every month.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So you're saying like a couple times a year, three times a year? Yeah,
2: yeah, if, I mean, if that,
3: yeah. I
0: find that the minor, uh, or or the patch changes, are a lot easier to upgrade. Um, But like, a a little while ago, I wanted to upgrade from like, 1.3.12 to one of the 1.4 beta releases and found that to be, like, pretty significant. And I'm the only, well, at the time, I was the only UI developer at my company as well, and so, like, the app that I run is, like, 25,000 lines of of code, and so it's not, like, 150 or 160,000 lines, but, uh, yeah, even that was pretty significant. So minor versions, um, yeah, if you stay up on it, you you don't have to do quite as much, but I can see in a huge app um, even Uh, or, sorry, not minor versions, but patch versions, Uh, even patch versions would be uh, significant and maybe not worth the the effort every month.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you that a large portion of our application still runs on 1.0.8, simply because there was a very large breaking change going to 1.2, which has to do with the double transclusion on a single element, and that has hampered our ability to upgrade uh, to no end because essentially we, it's like the, sometimes it feels a little bit like the Wild West. Like we're deploying all the time, and it's sort of up to the person whose task it is to upgrade Angular to sort of race with the other feature branches to kind of get his in. Before the other people have to merge theirs in, and then it's their problem to take care of all the, you know, the merge request, the merge uh, conflicts. But conflicts. It's,
4: yeah, dude, that is so common, man. <laughs> like, it's all like, it's it's just like a,
1: it's a race to the finish line sometimes, because you know, the second that other feature branch comes in, then your upgrade to Angular is going to break, because now there's parts of the app that haven't been upgraded yet, and you're like, ah, yeah, it's just it's super frustrating. So we have parts that are still that are running on one point two, and parts that
3: are running on one oh eight. Wow, so, that's nuts. So yeah. I, w- I, will throw a tip out there. I think it's a tip. Maybe it's not a tip, but like the reason we can't update more often is because management freaks. So <laughs> it's it's not like can't see Dodds on my team and can't freaks. It's like um a manager who who doesn't know what a dollar scope is. Like he hears dollar scope and cries. <laughs> He's the one that freaks, right? And so or she, right? It's 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 a manager though, and. So the way we have fought that, because I think most people are in this boat. This is why I'm giving this tip. The way we have fought that is with data. And so we don't just, like, emotionally say, we really, really want to upgrade, man, like, 1.3.20, whatever, looks awesome. We don't, because that's how we started, and it was bad, and (laughs) we got behind. And so now we're, like... Now we know they're going to be petty, and they're going to use their petty authority to be more petty than this should be. So we're like, okay, well, your opinion versus my data, I win. So um, we'll put it into a branch, test, 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 looks good. Okay, now that we know it looks good, we made a formal agreement that if it looks good, we made them agree that if it looks good, we can put it into master on the day one of the new cycle, the new dev iteration. And so then we check it in. We have two weeks to develop against it, two more weeks to test against it, so you have four full weeks against it, plus whatever testing we did before it says. So if you're in the in an organization where you're hindered by management to not upgrade, data will win. Like, your opinion versus someone else's data will lose every single time. So just come at them with data, and you can upgrade. It's It makes your life so much easier. Just, just give it a try. You'll see. So... How do you
5: organize, uh, architect your app if you have, um, I don't know, if you have to to break your app uh, between different versions of Angular?
1: Well, okay, so let me just stare at Aaron for a second here, because, uh, like I said, so I've been, this app has been growing since 1.04, 1.0.4. And at the time, the kind of best practices were, here's your controller file here's your services file, here's your directives file, and, like, everything was just these massive files. Uh, we at least had the foresight to know that was a horrible idea. But we didn't go that much farther. So it's sort of broken down, but it's like all of your controllers are organized over here and all of your services are over here and all of your directives are over here and all of your views are over here. So they're, they're grouped but separated. And um, that's been really no value add for us, because yeah. if you, yeah, you want to update a view, you got to find the view in this folder, and then you got to find the corresponding controller in this folder, and then you got to find the corresponding directive in that folder, and you know, thankfully, you know, again, uh, referencing the style guide, obviously we've all sort of learned from those kind of problems, and, and fallen back into more of a component-oriented uh, architecture, but Sadly, yeah, like feature
3: yeah. folders, right? You yeah. use feature folders now,
1: yeah. Well, I'd like to use feature folders now, so I'll say yes. <laughs>
0: okay. So how big are, like, uh, I'm just really curious about, about this, um, and I was actually having a discussion with uh, John Papa about um, some of his uh, folder structure stuff, and to me it just seems really arbitrary, like, so you do have your feature folders, and so, like, here's the admin portion of the app, but then he suggests, like, once that gets to a certain number of files, but it's not really a set number, just, like, some arbitrary number of files, then you split it out into or, or you try to organize it from there. And I, um, is that kind of the, the approach that you go? Because to me, that just seems kind of like a more of an emotional decision, like, oh, I feel like there are too many files in this folder, and uh, less kind of convention-based um, is... Like, what, what's your, your guys' approach to, um, like, how you, like, because you have features, but then you have features within features, and do you break it out, like, at that level, or how does, how does that folder structure work? Because I think folder structure is one of the big things um, as far as architecting huge apps, because there's tons of files.
3: Why don't we, does Annie have an opinion? I feel bad, like, talking. Does anyone else have, like, an opinion that is awesome? Because <laughs> Ben and I are kind of boring.
0: Ben's over here thinking like talk for yourself bro <laughs> I'm just glad somebody said it <laughs> <laughs> well uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go oh, go ahead Kara
2: Oh I was just gonna say I mean so so we use that architecture we have um, feature folders and we have like controllers and directives underneath it um, yeah I mean I think it is it has to be intuitive though right because the whole point for us is you know how on a team with a lot of developers, is it the easiest for people to find things? Um, so at the end of the day, I feel like if you are too strict to convention, sometimes it's not going to necessarily fit your app perfectly. And for us, it's just kind of like, okay, you know, like this view is within this view, so then the folder kind of intuitively makes sense to be in this folder. I don't know. I mean, we don't have, like, strict rules, but I guess the only rule we have is, like, how, it, how does it make it the easiest to find if you don't know what you're looking
0: for? Yes. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I like. I, I think a huge piece of this is the um, making sure that it's intuitive, like you said, Kara. Um, so like, I've got a pretty um, maybe outrageous um, convention in my app, but it works really, really well. Um, but what it basically amounts to is like my folder nesting is crazy, um, and and basically the um, the folder structure follows the uh, the URL. Um, and, yeah, there, there's a little bit more uh, more to that, but um, maybe I'll post a link. I, I kind of got the idea from Ryan Florence and the way he structures his um, React apps, but um, I, by, by having the folder structure follow the URL, it's like, we, we have uh, backend uh, developers working on our app as well occasionally, who, like, know Angular only a tiny little bit, um, but after they learned the convention, all they, that they need to do is look at the URL, like, I need to make a change to this thing, They look at the URL, and they go to that place in the folder structure, and they know exactly where they are. Um, and that has been really, really valuable to them and, and for us.
1: Yeah. Uh, we use, I mean, uh, like I said, we're our architecture is a little bit archaic at this point, but we do use a similar approach in that the nesting of our folders does... Uh, not necessarily with the URL, but with the understanding of the UI itself. So if you have uh, part of the UI that is kind of a macro area of the site, and then inside of that you have maybe a tabbed UI, where each tab is kind of its own feature set. In our folder structure, we will definitely mimic that, where we have a folder for the macro feature and then subfolders for the kind of the nested features. Um, for, for me, when I read the style guide, the part that falls down, or maybe the the mental disconnect that I have, is pulling services and your kind of data layer oriented features and commingling those with feature folders. So, because uh, because services are oftentimes much more cross cutting than a particular component of the application, and rather than saying, well, this feature sort of fits with this component, but this one is more cross-cutting, I would probably err on the side of saying, okay, all of my services are over here, and they're all services, and they're all cross-cutting. Some are more cross-cutting than others. And then all of my views and my controllers and my directives, those can be much more componentized because they're very specific to parts of the application.
3: So I'm... I think I think I I have an even different approach. It's um, well, like when you look at a page, when you look at an app, you have pages, right, or features, whatever we want to call them. But then inside of them, you have components, right? And those are very different things because a component is everywhere; it's on all the pages. Whereas a page is only one page; it's only itself. And so at Domo. We have, like, um, feature folders for all the, the page-level um, directives and controllers and stuff, but we also have this big common folder where anything that's shared across multiple pages, we put into a common folder. And inside common, it's kind of replicated the, um, the same feature folder because, and then we, we put all of our components in there. Like, so if you have a component like blah, blah, drop-down, like, that goes into it, the blah, blah, drop-down folder. Or if you have your services for, like, the thing service that does things, like, that goes into, like, and and, and, and a lot of pages do things, so we put the thing service into the uh, common folder because that doesn't make sense to put it on a page in a a feature folder. It belongs in, like, a common directory in a common module. So that's kind of how we structure that all out.
6: That's exactly what we have, too. Like, our app, which is, you know and then you can think of it as a different pages and then a
4: common folder for all of our reusable stuff. Have no. you guys you thought about changing, so there's a, a top-level common folder, but have you thought about having the common folder deep inside of your folder structure? So you're saying, like, if, um, so I, I manage my thing. I manage my folder structure by state, and that gets kind of crazy, too. It's similar to, um, like, I can see dots, um, but essentially, what I do is like whenever this particular leaf node uh, of the state is sharing code, I would just have a, a common folder there. And if it's and if something above it needs that, then I would move the common folder up. And then eventually I'll move all the service up, 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 up to the very top. Um, what do you think of, of that approach,
0: Patrick? That's exactly what I do, actually. Um, so it's it's very hierarchical. And what that wins you and Olivier can speak to this is uh, code splitting and uh, lazy loading. So if, if you're using something like Webpack to um, package your, your front-end assets, then you can much more easily code split stuff and say, like, this is the common for uh, the, like, the, the children of this folder. This is uh, the common for, for those uh, pieces. Um, and yeah, uh, and I find that to be a much better way to reason about things. Unfortunately, once it actually gets into the Angular app, um, then everything's on the global namespace, and you don't really know if, it, like, you can't actually enforce the fact that these services aren't being used by any anywhere else that they shouldn't be, and I know that Dave Geddes, when he took Domo and uh, did lazy loading um, for that, that was, like, a big pain in the rear because of that, um, just because we were using services from other modules that weren't actually supposed to be depending on them and stuff, but um, by structuring things in that way, it just makes things a lot easier, Um, so I'm totally on board with you on uh, on that one, Patrick.
1: And I guess I would say, so, you know, there's obviously, uh, Angular 2.0 is a hot topic, and uh, I think for me the most interesting and exciting part of Angular 2.0, obviously the performance is gonna be fun, but the, the... potential to lazy load entire modules within your application. Uh, I don't quite know how that works yet. I don't. Uh, I haven't dove, 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 in, dove into Angular 2, uh, but I think when you're presented with the opportunity to lazy load kind of these nested dependency injection components, uh, that will probably start to influence the way that I think about organizing the application, but all theoretical at this point.
5: So, I'm curious, um, how do you build your app? Because I guess that you don't have everything in one single JS file. Yeah, so wh- what kind of tools do you use, and how do you structure so,
3: the build app? So, before the webpack existed, there was required JS. And The way that our, the way that Domo has has set up this large app is in order to avoid constant merge conflicts on one gigantic require file, what we do is every feature folder has an app.js. And the main require requires all the individual app.js's. So when you create a new feature, you go require apps, app.js in the main require file. And then in your app.js yes, for your feature, that's where you require everything that you're going to use for your feature. And then that w- that that reduces the number of merge conflicts because if it was one huge file, then everyone's got a clobber and, and and constantly, you know, your poll is going to be a nightmare. That's how we deal with it. We 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 we've broken it out into multiple um, app.js's, and so every every. Feature kind of bootstraps itself with require if that makes any sense. And and we felt like that's been maintainable for us is, is as far as like not everyone stepping on everyone else's toes to get new features and new files added to the system.
0: So yeah, I think it's uh um, it can be a mistake like it, early on um, when I was building apps I would just rely really heavily on Angular's module system and I just like throw up script tags or, or um, just depend on the side effects of, of a file being required and and what that um, module returns doesn't actually matter to me because I'll, I'll, all I want it to do is run the code. I don't actually want to do anything with what I'm requiring. Um, I've since changed that, and, and now when I require a module, it gives me back the module name, and then I use that module name as, like, a dependency, um, and so, like, What's really cool about that is, and, and there's actually a, bit, a bunch of other abstractions. But um, the what's cool about that is, I was able to completely move one feature um, that was actually kind of a nested feature from one page to another. Uh, it was just some weird business requirement, and um, and I only had to change my require statements, um, and that was way like validating uh, to me. But uh, yeah, I. Like, before that, I, I had this gulp task that was, like, huge that would read my file system and find all of the JavaScript files, and then I had a naming convention that said, this is where my module's defined. So it would make sure to load all the modules first, and then it would, like, load all the um, just components, because it doesn't matter what order those run in. Um, and it would just make one huge index.html like, ginormous, tons and tons of scripts, like, hundreds of scripts. That was not scalable, and uh, I couldn't give ES6 with that or anything. Like it was, it was crazy. So, yeah. Pro tip: Please use a build system. Uh, So, Aaron, you said this was before Webpack. Are you
3: guys using Webpack now? Uh, We're 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 doing the steps we need to to get on the Webpack. That's so. um, Someone asked this earlier, actually, and we didn't actually answer it. When you get in a large app. Um, how do you like make sure you're always moving forward? At Domo, we implemented the like as a team. We all agreed that for initiatives like upgraded Angular or getting us on Webpack or um, really anything where we have this technical debt or these downsides, we made like a two by two grid, and uh, the bottom. It's like it's kind of like a graph. Um, the higher you, the further you go this way, um, the, is the benefit you get from doing some new projects. And the higher you go up is the, the effort it's gonna take to get there. So anything in this low effort, high benefit category is what we attack first. So we, so we officially make proposals for, we call it the champion program. If you see something like converting the web pack as a thing we should do to be better, we submit um, a champion proposal. And then we nominate a champion, that will run that and that's kind of how we get things pushed. The champion coordinates with management and coordinates across teams, saying, hey, you're all gonna have to remove your root scope, apply calls, or whatever it is, I don't even know, right? Like, but that champion runs that, and that's how we get new things pushed through, so we currently have a Webpack champion, and it's, you guys know him probably. His name's America Christensen, and he's awesome, so, yeah.
0: Cool, I was just gonna ask why you chose Webpack over Browser 5, now I know. (laughs)
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Do you do the same thing for managing technical debt?
3: Um, so, we do, like, if, if we have, like, a major, like, a huge, like, like, we did something wrong. So, here's an example. We have four, like, we have one CSS framework to build modals, but we have four different angular directives for modals. And so it's like, well, how, why do we have four like who's, whose idea was that and why don't we just have one and so we have a champion right now who's gonna go through and consolidate those four modal directives down into one and then re-implement the one that we choose in the other places um, where the other three that we're gonna get rid of our used. if that makes sense so we do it for technical as well the championship program works for really any priority that our dev team sees that we need and Because dev doesn't drive features and dev doesn't really have control over, like, iteration work, uh, the champions work with the project management team to get those things prioritized so that the developers can get cycles to work on those during a dev sprint. So yeah, we do push that stuff through the championship program as well.
0: That's right. Really so cool. We we are wrapping up on our time a little bit, we, um, but we have a couple of questions that we definitely uh, wanted to ask. Uh, any from our panelists?
6: Yeah, I had a couple other questions. Um, my first question was: Are you guys like using ES6 or any like leveraging ES6 at all to help maintainability? And if so, like how are you doing that?
1: I we're still just in regular JavaScript. Right now, I mean, we, don't, we don't use anything like CoffeeScript or any kind of transpilers currently. Um, I'm very on the fence about a lot of the ES6 stuff. From a lot of what I've seen personally, it feels like it's solving problems that I don't have. Um, I did watch a brief egghead I.O. video the other day about trying to implement some Angular 2 stuff in ES5. That was hilarious. And incredibly verbose and completely non-intuitive. so uh, I will probably be moving to es6 at some point, but uh, nothing currently.
3: That's funny. So, um, so we have we recently changed our UI automation testing. Amy and we, we wrote the whole thing in es6 using Babel. And so, it's been kind of a cool exercise for everyone to kind of wrap your head around generators and classes and um, inheritance with classes versus prototypes and um, all the new syntax around you know arrow functions and all the new all the new sugar that comes with with ES6. And so, we started using it in our tests, but our, I think our immediate goal, and we have a champion for this, is to get us onto um, is to get us onto a TypeScript, and 1.5, we're not going to adopt it until it's a thing. And right now, I think it's in beta, right? It's not a thing. It's just a beta thing. Yeah, so once it's an actual thing, that's when the champion will really get serious about it. But for now, we're going to stay where we are, and then we'll adopt. Uh, It looks like we're going to adopt TypeScript, especially with some of the support TypeScript's getting with Webpack. It's, It's probably what we'll use.
6: Kent knows, because I asked him a question. That was something I was, like, recently doing here, and, um, like, the stuff I was working on was converting all of our stuff to controller ads, but then also trying to do ES6 at the same time, and, like, some of the stuff was good, and then some of it I was just, I don't know, not completely on board. Maybe I just need to get used to it, but I'm still kind of, eh, so-so.
0: Yeah, I'm still not a huge fan of classes. I'll just throw that out there. So I think
6: Like, not yet. I think maybe there's more coming in ES7, but ES6, yeah, it's kind of, like, half fake right now.
4: So there's a performance boost with classes, because down in the VM, it literally makes a class for every, like, object literal or whatever you make. So, I mean, that's the reason why it's kind of here. Like, the the browser looks for the pattern of a class where you have methods on the prototype, and then uh, it just does its class things and replicates that.
3: Well, there's there's other performance on top of it because with prototypical inheritance, every function has to have a prototype, even though yeah. you just you just needed to carry some some functionality. You don't need to be a constructor uh, or to be newable, right? And with um, if classes ever really like took off, and anonymous functions or functions were only used as functions, they were never used as constructors anymore. Then every function would have a lighter footprint in memory. So there's like a lot of potential long-term mm-hmm. gains from classes. At first I was really scared of them having worked in several large Java projects and it's like a just a sport to to make more abstraction and inheritance patterns which which I absolutely hate <laughs> and um, so but now I'm kind of coming around to it and I, I do think it, there's a lot of long-term wins with classes specifically but I see guys who I really respect like Kent and The one who really stands out the most is Eric Elliott. I have no idea why some of them are just so, like, vitrologically against classes. Like, it's one thing to, like, I'm not going to use them, but to just, like, flame the TC39 for even making it happen, it's just weird. So I, I maybe don't like them, but don't hate them. Like, don't flame people because you don't like them. You know what I'm saying? Like, be a good community member still.
0: But, yeah. Yeah, totally. I'm definitely not in that camp. Um, I, I think that I will like them eventually, um, but...
3: Yeah. The,
6: like, the ugliest part to me was trying to do a directive with a class. That was just really bad.
0: Nice. Um, so, uh, Amy, you had a good question, actually. Did you want to ask about that?
6: Uh, I had two more. One of them's not on the list, but I'll go with the one that's on the list. So, um, I'm, like junior developer Do um, you have any tips for like juniors coming on to a really large code base um, like I think Kara did a boot camp I did a boot camp and um, you know some of the applications were or I shouldn't speak for her I'll speak for myself <laughs> like we're building um, like these you know smaller applications and then you come on to a really huge project and kind of like don't know where to start um, like I started by reading tests and just breaking stuff and learning by breaking, but I was curious if you had uh, any advice that you could speak to.
3: Um, I do have advice. Ben, do you have advice, though? I feel like I'm I'm hogging the mic. Um,
1: If possible, and this wouldn't necessarily be in your hands, but if you could do some sort of a rotation as, like, a managing incoming bugs or something, right? Where you're not necessarily working on new features, but you're like, hey, when I click this, it scrolls to the top of the page, or you know, when I click this, it should show, but it's not showing. Like, if you can get a couple of weeks of that, that would force you to really move around the architecture and kind of get a sense of all the, the layouts of the files and how things are wired together in kind of a very safe, small, uh, kind of sandboxed way. Would be, that would be great, but of course, that's, that's often not up to you.
3: <laughs> so I would add to that, because that is a great idea, and I advocate this for a lot of people, um, I, at Domo, we, we cloned John Papa's style guide, and then we ripped out a ton of stuff, because we, we disagree with a ton of it, but we agree with a ton of it as well. But the places we disagreed with, we needed to replace with our own flavor, right? And then there's things he leaves out that we needed to add. And so um, ideally, one of the team leads is writing this so that when, Amy, when you start, it's like, oh, I can go read all this and understand how I should do it and why I should do it that way. But let's say you're in a company that doesn't have that. It would be a super valuable exercise for a junior developer to go clone it and write your company's style guide as like the first thing you do because then you gotta go ask all the questions. Hey, what do we do for injection? What do we do? We have, do we use, what are all the steps we have in our build? How do we, like this is our style guide. I'm gonna make it so that the next person that comes along doesn't have to have this learning problem. That would be a good exercise is building your company's style guide and like formally getting everyone to adopt it and putting it out on your company's, you know, GitHub or whatever so that everyone, all new employees can, can follow and, and learn the questions you're trying to answer for yourself. That's, but that's like a really good exercise too.
1: And, cool. and also, go um, ahead, ben. Sorry. The only other thing that I would add is that I know uh, people might be very nervous about asking other people on their team for help, or, or not even help, but just kind of shouldering up and saying, "Hey, how would you solve this problem?" or "Can I talk through solving this problem?" I think more people than you realize are super excited to be able to tell you how they would solve something and like how, you know, how they would look at it and the kinds of things that you should be aware of when thinking about this and because there's a lot of of tribal knowledge, not just about how things are done but specifically about how things are not done, right, because oh yeah, you wanted to do it this way, so did we six months ago and that was a really bad idea and here's why, you know, that kind of thing.
2: I feel like that's why having a company style guide is such a good thing, like like to Aaron's point, because then you can write down some of that tribal knowledge, you know, like document this is what we did wrong and why. Um,
3: So just to drive it home, we actually hired a big team of developers in India, and they were like, what do we do? What is Domo? How do you write Angular? (laughs) And so we had to teach them, and, and so we're like, hey, just submit pull requests for now, and we'll kind of guide you via this pull request, because we'll just comment on the pull request, and then you'll fix that, and then everyone will be happy. But then, like, reviewing these pull requests went crazy. <laughs> it was like a full-time job. And so we're like, you know what? Hey, hey, let's build a style guide, and then just start rejecting these pull requests if they don't match the style guide, and then these guys, this team over here can figure it out um, on their own, and we do that is so much better. Like they, they oh, now they know how
0: to do it. Yeah, very cool, very cool idea. I'm, I'm gonna do that. That's a really good idea. Thanks for that, sir. It's been
6: Interesting to look at. Like we have just started using JSCS to like you can do style in there, so that's something interesting to look at.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of work, but I think it's worth it. And so just
1: to be clear for anybody who's listening or watching, so when you're talking about doing pull requests. I assume for the most part we're all talking about doing that on GitHub.
0: Yeah, we do pull requests, but we're on a Atlassian with uh, Stash. But yeah, they have uh, pull requests, similar, similar feature.
1: Yeah, get, pull, pull requests are such a great way to review code, especially now. I guess a couple of months ago they finally started doing the sort of side unified file side by side file, side-by-side stuff.
3: Yeah.
1: Oh, world of difference. Jeez.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, and that's great. Also, so this is like just a random thing, right? Uh, I will oftentimes, when you're reviewing your own code locally, uh, I find that changing the context of my own code helps me think about it differently. So I will oftentimes, while I'm working on a feature branch locally, I will push it up to GitHub and create a pull request just so I can see the side-by-side view of it. And it, it kind of, it's like taking a step back and, and looking at it in a different way, and it gives you an opportunity to just examine the architecture and think about it a little bit differently, which has been great.
2: Yeah, I actually do that too. It's like a good bird's eye view. Like, yeah. would, I'll look at this whole system just given these changes Yeah,
0: like Absolutely. Cool. So uh, we had a couple last questions before we get into the Q&A from our audience, which I think is starting to pile up. So um, first, uh, what what do you think about Angular two? Have you guys looked into Angular's architecture?
3: Um, I'm not really an Angular two pro yet. I've done mm, tutorials, and I have an opinion that the syntax is super different. But I think it's it's better, and and like I have some opinions about why I think the new stuff is good. Um, but I, I'm not a pro at it yet, so I don't really know. Uh, besides what Mishko tells me, it's fast. I don't, I don't really know beyond that.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat in the same boat. Of, of, of all the things that I've heard, because really I've just heard stuff at this point, I get excited about the lazy loading of modules, right? They've, uh, as Kent pointed out earlier, you inject something into your application, it all goes into the same place. Um, which is fun for namespacing. Angular 2, not only can you have the lazy loading, but I think the lazy loading affords this kind of hierarchy of dependency injection modules, which will allow a little bit nicer ability to quarantine various parts of your application. So that, to me, is exciting, and I think that also ties into the, to the entirely revamped router, which I happen to think that the current router is really good I think I don't use it the way other people do, but uh, the lazy loading that ties into the router I'm excited about. And then the performance is probably above all what seems the most exciting to me.
0: Great. Um, I'm excited about Angular 2. I think it's going to be awesome. Um, Angular 2 as well or Angular also? (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) I don't know how to answer that question. I'm excited about it all. (laughs) Sweet. So um, we had uh, two more questions. I don't know who who posted this. But uh, if you could do it all again, what would you change? This might be a really big question. Um, But uh, I think it's a good one.
3: If we could do it all again, what would we change? Ben, you got something, bro?
1: Uh, I started out using the dollar sign resource library. I think that was just a huge mistake, and we're still paying for that one. If, If you need to get data from the server, just use HTTP. It will do exactly what you want and
0: add nothing else.
1: And change the entire architecture also. Yeah,
0: I would agree with that. Dollar resource has got to go. Uh, I, We made that mistake as well, actually, and uh, transferring over to JS Data with uh, JS Data Angular, it's super, super good, so if you're interested in having some layer of abstraction, I highly recommend that, um, but yeah, totally agree with you, Ben.
3: Um, I would have made sure that we formalize on a directive API because we don't have a formal directive API, so... If someone has a dropdown that didn't work the right way, um, they would go write another one, <laughs> and so we have multiple of the same bloody thing, and we have multiples of that. So it's like an NG repeat instead of NG repeat, like we repeated the same problem again and again. <laughs> um, and so I would change that, like formalizing on what you think your directive API should look like, and the name, the naming of your attributes on those directives and then, um, like, figuring out a way to share those across teams, and then um, just not not everyone writing the same bloody thing again and again and again. So that's what I would do differently. want to
0: close up this last question?
4: Yeah, what's uh, the craziest performance hack that you've done? I
3: know Ben's done some stuff. I love I read performance.
4: His
1: blog. Yeah. <laughs> I've done, uh, so uh, a couple of things that I think are just fun are, uh, so as I was saying, a lot of our stuff is still stuck in 1.0.8. And there are a couple of things in 1.2 that are really great for performance, like having the track by feature in the ng repeat so you don't have to reclone nodes. Mm. Um, or the, uh, there was the other one? There's a couple of features that are in 1.2 that I recreated as directives in 1.0.8, and they're a little hacky, but they do, they work. So that's like, to me, it's feel like a, you know, it's like gorilla upgrading of the framework, right? It's like you're patching the framework itself, almost, because you can't upgrade it. So that's, I find that to be a
3: lot of fun. So I needed to do a drag and drop, kind of like a Trello type thing. And um, I thought it would be cool to do it in Angular. (laughs) And uh, then I tried it. So every time the the mouse moves a pixel, a digest happens. You can imagine how awesome the performance on that is, right? Like uh, one frame per second, basically. (laughs) So I I had to, I wrote a blog post about it where I jailbroke Angular. And it's just about, you're trying to be a good citizen, and use all the Angular things. Everything's Angular, and because you read it on a blog, or can't see Dodds told me to. (laughs) So <laughs> what? Sometimes you need to you need to bust out of Angular and be brave and go go do it on your own and then get back in Angular some other way. And I did a drag and drop outside of Angular, and I did it a new way. And then when it's done, um, it comes back in Angular very nicely. But it was very performance intensive, and trying to measure it all went crazy. So I went from one frame is uh, one frame a second to sixty frames a second on it by Doing like taking the scroll or the ng uh, the mouse move event out of Angular and putting it somewhere else, but like in a jQuery listener. So that was one that I did. That was kind of crazy. Took a long time, but it was a lot of fun.
1: If if I can just add to that and maybe uh, say it in a slightly different way, right? So so when you come into Angular, there's this there's this deep philosophy that all the different parts of your application have very specific roles, like your controller manages the view model, but it's not supposed to manage formatting, because the view is supposed to manage the formatting, and if you want to format a date, you know, you use a filter. If you want to format a currency, you use a filter. As your application grows, right, and it gets bigger, and the pages get more intense, you have to blur those lines a little bit, or you have to share the responsibility, maybe, is a, is a better term. So so just the drag-and-drop is, is a perfect example, right? And you can, you can start to do clever things where... Let's say you're dragging something around and you have an ng style that has the x and y coordinates that get calculated. So there's nothing that really says, okay, I can set that in my directive, but I don't necessarily have to call it digest. So what if I set the view model and I explicitly set the x, y coordinate on the element itself in vanilla JavaScript, this way it's moving around as the mouse is moving and then if a digest were to kick in, maybe because a promise came back or an Ajax request came back, you're kind of updating it in both places, and then it just synchronizes automatically. But, you know, a lot of people look at that and say, well, you know, don't do that in the director because Aaron's pointing out, right? Like, you have to make these
3: concessions sometimes. It's not, a, it's
1: not a bad thing.
3: It's the exception of the rule, but you should make exceptions when you need them. 100%. Cool.
0: All right, so we are almost already done with our time, but we have some really good uh, questions in the Q&A, and so if it's okay uh, with everybody present, we'll go over by a couple minutes. Feel free to drop out if you need to. Um, so, yeah, the first question, top voted in our Q&A is, any experience with lazy loading large single-page Angular apps? Which solution worked for you and which didn't? Or do you prefer splitting up an app on different pages. So non-SPA. Um, so yeah, what are you what are your thoughts? I would
1: say when possible, split it up into single page apps. But you know, as Aaron was saying, in his in his world that's not a possibility. I I've only played around kind of R and D in lazy loading with a uh, pre 2 right? Because if you want it if you wanted to do lazy loading, Technically speaking, what you have to do now is, during the bootstrapping of the Angular app, you have to maintain a reference to the providers that provide for controllers, directives, services, factories, uh, the compiler itself. You have to maintain a reference to that. Then if you want to lazy load something, say with require later on, you sort of have to monkey patch references to these modules controller uh, module methods, so that later if you're gonna lazy load something else that's about to register something with dot .controller, dot .controller wouldn't exist previously, but would need a monkey patch to exist. It's definitely super hacky. Um, there are a couple of blog posts on it that I've seen. Um, so I don't know if there is a good solution at this point.
0: I think nobody knows more about that subject uh, than Olivier.
1: Yeah, but I'm a bit partial, so...
5: <laughs> I don't know if I should, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there are a couple of libs uh, out there that you can use, uh, such as uh, OC lazy load or Overmind, uh, and a couple others. Uh, or you can wait for Angular 1.5 and the new Neuroto, if you want.
3: So um, I we we had a, our app was lazy loaded. Um, every feature. We, we broke it into an Overmind module. We used this thing called Overmind, and we we actually had some problems where it wasn't helping us in the way we thought it was, so we got rid of it. Um, if we had to do it again, we probably would investigate um, OC lazy load with... Um, with a little bit more, like, open eyes than we did the first time, so, yeah. But for now, we're just using a single-page app, and we're waiting for 1.5. That's kind of our our current uh, idea.
0: The nice thing for you guys, though, is, like, um, users pay for your app, and so if it takes, you know, three seconds to...